This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello everybody, my name is Yesid Ortega and this is Chasing Encounters, one new episode of our exciting series in uh, these episodes. Uh, today is a beautiful day, it looks like a spring, although we don't know if we're gonna get back our regular wintry season. But regardless, we have our friend today, Roxana Escobar, right? And I'm pronouncing it in English. But let's see what Roxana has to say. Hello. Hello. Hi, my name is Roxana Escobar Ñañez. I'm from Peru. Right. Thank you for coming today. As we all know, our friends know that this is a podcast about diversity, identities, languages, cultures, etc. So I would like to know a little bit about Roxana and where you're coming from. Well, um, I grew up, in, I'm born and raised in Lima, Peru, and I came to U of T in 2015 to do my master's in social justice education. And then I switched to do a PhD in human geography. And my research has always been focused, uh, even when I was here at OIC, uh, on Afro-Peruvian people. But currently, my research is focused on understanding how Afro-Peruvian women's lives and identities are shaped in urban spaces, specifically in the city of Lima. You mentioned the idea of human geography, right? Yeah. So when, when, when I have talked to you about uh, human geography, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, the idea of my body and then how I map my body. But obviously, this idea came of uh, my ignorance of the field. So maybe our audience wants to know a little bit about what a human geography means. Okay, to the best of my understanding, <laughs> because it's also difficult for me, I, I studied philosophy and political science when nice. I was in Lima. So when I moved to Canada, I encountered uh, this great, and um, it's not that young, but it's like a new social science. Mm. And I think what's at the grasp of human geography is like the reality to understand that our lives are shaped by space. Mm, so space. it's not that a space is an empty canvas where social interactions are produced, it's that those social interactions are produced because of the space we are at. And that's why you can understand um, different ways of being, you know, like different ways of gender, different ways of racism, different ways of politics, or different ways of even, you know, like eating, drinking water, spending time outside or inside, or gender relationships in the home. It depends on the, on the space we are at and the meanings that we give to those spaces. Uh, spaces become places because we give them meanings. We give them emotional attachment and we transform them, right? Before it was just land mm -hmm. and land had, for example, currently right now with indigenous populations and what's happening right now in Canada and around the world with indigenous populations, we have two epistemological approaches to land. We have the indigenous epistemological approach that seem land as life and you have the government approach that is purely neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. So you can have both meanings of place at the same time. And it depends on us, 
the human geographers to explain how those meanings can shift, how those meanings change, yeah. and especially how they coexist. And I think that's where we're at right now. It's interesting to know about um, the relationship of uh, the land and the spaces and our bodies. And obviously, I'm coming from the field of language education and second language education. And these are topics that are new to me. And that's why I decided to invite you so you can, so you can enlighten us a little bit about these topics. So um, going back a little bit to your background, you mentioned that you were born and raised in Lima, Peru, right? So I, I want to step back a little bit and you tell us a little bit about those early stages in your life when you grew up. So maybe you can help us understand a little bit about who you are in terms of uh, that, um, that those, those spaces hmm. slash your position back when you were in Peru as, as, a, as, as a woman, right? But also as a sort of racialized woman in Peru. So if you want to expand a little bit about that, uh, take us back home a little bit. Okay, so, well, both of my families lived in a, what is considered a working class Afro-Peruvian neighborhood in Lima. Uh, however, I am not uh, read as an Afro-Peruvian woman. I look like mestiza women uh, because my father, he is Afro-Peruvian, but my mother, he, she is from indigenous backgrounds. As, however, growing up, blackness was all around me. And me having a black sense of place was a huge part of my life. The music, the food, the celebrations that we had were all around blackness and the importance of blackness in our lives. So in Lima, I always understood that blackness as domestic as something that happens in the house as something that happens in the neighborhood or around my family it was always familiar but when i was at school blackness wasn't you know like the main point of my life or like even the center of my interactions because i had no other peers that were black or were african descendant as i recognized myself so i remember one time when i was at high school and I think my friends didn't actually knew my father, and they saw my father once, and I immediately became black. Hmm. And they started treating me as I, if I was a black person. And that was, I think, probably the first time that I encountered racism wow. as my father will have encountered in his life. It was wow. the first time that I understood what this all is about, right? How racism works. And it only were, like, it, it was, only you know it became a reality just because they saw who my father was before it really didn't matter because i look like any other you know like quote-unquote regular peruvian right. uh, and after that encounter my all my friends started calling me cele cruz hmm. because cele cruz just died you know like right. 2000 early 2000 hmm. um and then it became like a joke, and I didn't actually took it badly because like, it was like, yeah, well, I can be Celia Cruz, I don't, I don't care. And also, she's a nice, you know, like, she's a, a, a huge figure for Latin American people, so I really didn't care. And I think the second, um, the second most, I don't know, like, one of the huge memories that I have around blackness outside of the home happened when I graduated from college, so I did my major in philosophy. And 
I did it in a very elite middle-class university in Lima. So when I graduated, I invited my best friends from my neighborhood to the celebration. And one of, the, one of, of my friends told me, you have realized that your father is the only black person here. So it came all over again, right? I was like, oh, so it is the presence of my father that is bringing me back to rethink who I am in these spaces at school and then at college and then in like in elite spaces where blackness is never around. And then I just start to reflect on, do I have any Afro-Peruvian professors? Did I have any Afro-Peruvian uh, peers? I remember only having one Afro-Peruvian student that worked with me, but that was it. And even though my university is a university very much focused on studies, interculturalism, multiculturalism, racism. Uh, we never talk about Afro-Peruvian people. Uh, in Peru, like, the discussion about racism is mostly focused on indigenous people versus white people, basically. And, and yeah, like, so those spaces for me were, it made me realize how blackness is hidden in the history of Peru, how blackness must remain at the home, how it had, it had to become a domestic space in order to be fulfilled, in order to be enjoyed. But on the public sphere, blackness was never present unless it's some type of a stereotypical form of blackness of like this image of the mummy, you know, like this black lady cooking and dancing and just pure entertainment, but never as part of the fabric of the nation. So that's why I'm doing this research. I'm trying to say how, first of all, Afro-Peruvian women exist. They are in Lima. They are more than just bodies habitating domestic spaces. They are part of the identity of Lima and their work and also their expressions, their cultural expressions are part of the identity of the country. Nice. Thank you so much for bringing those topics up, especially when, you know, sometimes these conversations never happen because, uh, like you said, uh, sometimes these spaces or spaces to talk about these issues are never there. And they have been silent for so long. And you mentioned how black means being bad and blackness is a synonym of negativity. And it keeps coming back to you, and not only you, of, co of course, for you as a person, but for the entire society uh, in which uh, keeps hunting people of color, black folks and indigenous folks out there, and it becomes a space of struggle for so long, right? So my, my leading question is now related to, now that you live and study here in North America, how all of these experiences back home translate to you now that you live here and when it comes to your identity? Has it changed? Is it similar? Is it better? Is it worse? How do you feel now that you live here and study here? Well, here I do feel uh, that I can be an ally 
for different social movements because of my formation, but also because of my scholarship. So I immediately started to volunteer with Poder, that is a Latinx um, organization here in Toronto, where I met other Afro-Peruvian women, which was nice and surprising, but also women from indigenous background. Uh, LGBTQ uh, people and non-binary people also working there, and I got a chance to actually understand what is Latinidad or what is to be Latinx in the diaspora, and how we are constantly being, you know, boxing some sort of stereotypes of like this loud, curvy, happy group of people, but at the same time, uh, I, I do feel that that Latinx thinking that is coming from the diaspora is very important to understand us in the, re in the region as well, in the region of Latin America, just because being in the diaspora allows you to keep a distance to the ways of being that you have always known. Uh, for example, in my case, uh, I'm a self-identified woman, so, and I got married before moving to Toronto, so, in my goodbye parties, they were all saying, well, I hope you came back with kids. Huh. Yeah. So like, that's the expectation. Is this idea that, 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 that you as a, as a woman... I need to reproduce. Right? Yeah. Huh. And of course, no one say that to my husband, right? Huh. It's yeah. so interesting. They yeah. said it to you. Then why didn't you say it to your husband? Hey, I hope you come because it's yeah. not only is see it's not. I, I I'm peeling the layers now because it's not only mm -hmm. race, but it's also gender. Yeah, and it's also the patriarchy here. You know, you know, unveiling, which yeah. is very interesting. Um. So when I moved here, I actually realized that I, of course there are patriarchal. Uh, you know, like the structure is still patriarchal here in mm. North America and we see it every day. However, mm. it's a different way of patriarchy and that's how mm. space, uh, you know, starts to become important in my life too. In the sense that, like, different and not different, but in the sense that here I am never persecuted about being reproduced. Mm. Um, I am, um, you know, like sometimes l l Latino communities can be very machistas, you know, like very macho. And here, like, I have gathered with a group of people that we have no expectations and about reproduction or we have no expectations to reproduce machista ways of being. Uh, Latinx and non-Latinx people would I hang out like yourself. And it, that has allowed me to see myself in retrospective, right? Mm -hmm. And where, you know, like, the main issues in my life that uh, make me leave my house, leave my family, leave everything behind me, and move to a different country. And I realized when I was here, I was like, yeah, like, this is a space, and I'm in a very privileged position because I'm... Uh, I have a scholarship from U of T. I have like a good life here in the sense that um, <clears throat> I'm not struggling constantly, uh, but I am also free to rethink what are my own priorities. We're our family expectations and we're our societal expectations of what a Latino woman should be in Latin America. And that has been very important for me that, however, doesn't erase the blunt racism that Latino women encounter constantly here in Canada. 
right? Or women of color encounter constantly in Canada. And yesterday was International Women's yes. March, and it was a powerful march for the Latinx group because we walked together and we sang together and we yelled together. Uh, feminizing Latin America are going out of fucking control. Uh, <clears throat> ten women are dying daily in Mexico. Three women are dying daily in Peru. Ten women are dying daily in Salvador. So that's something that one should stop. It too, we need to realize that it is an emergency and we need to start acting as an emergency because of that. And yesterday in, in the March, like we all got together and started, you know, like we put our, our house out uh, singing so loudly about these issues. And then when I was reviewing the media today, we have two lines in CBC. Like, you know, like we were probably one of the biggest contingents in the March, mm -hmm. and we had two lines, wow. right? And no interviews to mm. the leaders, the Latinx leaders of the march. So mm, that's annoying. Yes, yes. I, I, I realize now that you're bringing the topic, the struggle is not one, but it's many layers. And the struggle is international, meaning that it's not only Latinx peoples, or women in Peru, but it's, it's, it's across the continent. A group of women in general, so the suffering of women of color, even transgender women yeah. as well, and even transgender women from Latin America and transgender women of color from Latin America are the ones who are suffering the most and are, are, are at the bottom of, of the struggle. And then to know that this is happening and people out there are not paying attention to these things I like when you say this is an emergency and then we need to pay attention to this. Hence, the reason why you're here in the podcast to, to bring this attention to the peoples out there that, that, that sometimes uh, one of the goals of this podcast is precisely that to amplify the voices of those people who have not necessarily um, have that voice out there and we need to exercise that, that voice because whether we like it or not, yes, we live in North America, we live in Canada and as you mentioned, yes, we are privileged because we live here and we study here but we also need to also pay attention to those folks who have not necessarily have that privilege and I'm glad that you marched with other folks yesterday in solidarity of what's happening not only here in Toronto, in Canada, but also about what's happening down there. Um, so any other highlights that you want to mention based on yesterday's uh, march? Well, a uh, big shout out to the indigenous women that were marching as well. Uh, indigenous women in Canada are suffering constantly neoliberal capitalism and mm. patriarchy all at the same time their bodies and their territories are being invaded mm -hmm. and disappearing. Mm -hmm. And that's also an emergency that I cannot stress enough. Uh, as racialized women, sadly, part of our intersectionality is pain. And I feel that 
because we recognize that being among us, we are able to join in solidarity and march together, but also act together. Um, yesterday the march was great. Sincerely, uh, I never, I've been in marches before here in Toronto, but uh, yesterday was so powerful. We were so powerful together. We were chanting together. We were crying together. We were hugging together. And I remember one person saying like, you all look so happy. And we were like, well, I am happy because I'm here with my sisters that I know they will have my back and will support me. But that's the happiness that I can express because I'm alive mm -hmm. and because they are alive with me. Yep. But other than that, it's just pain. Women are disappearing in our region just because they're women. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like it's, it's, it's very difficult to even discuss this because it's getting so violent the way that feminicide has been happening. Oh. Uh, in Latin America and here also in North America, like just two weeks ago, a uh, four-year-old lady, baby, sorry, disappeared from her house and was found out dead, you know, hours later. And everyone had the footage of who the person that took her was, and it was a 15-year-old boy. And then everyone was mad, of course, and in pain, mm -hmm. but then all the rage and all the violence went against the mother. Of course. Right? The blame was just because why you weren't here taking care of your child. Hmm. What about this? And like that mother almost got lynched oh. in her uh, children's wake. Right? Because we are expected to be that. We are expected to be this perfect woman that will always, uh, you know, like, will always be perfect like Virgin Mary, basically. Yeah. And and it's difficult to even grasp how violence are, is extending to our child right now. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad that you're bringing all of these topics together. Um, I understand the, your experiences back home and your experiences here. We all come together to, to this idea of struggling and understanding other people's uh, experiences as well. I like when you said, I am alive, I'm a woman right and i'm alive like six here and there are indigenous women who are there right now they're alive and suffering and we need to pay attention to that so i want to bring you back again to you as as a researcher a person who is doing research on based on these experiences so maybe we want to focus this last section of the podcast on on your research and how you bring in all of these ideas and experiences obviously from home and also from here, how you translating all this in a research project? So maybe you want to tell us a little bit what you do, what are your methods, when are you traveling, what does your fieldwork look like, all of those things. Well, I am in the process of writing my dissertation proposal. I hope to be defended that in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, my research is, as I mentioned before, is focused on seeing how a space and place and Afro-Peruvian women's identity are intertwined. Mm -hmm. And the ways that you can see spatial practices of Afro-Peruvian women in Lima are in domestic spaces, as I mentioned before, uh, but not only as imposition of servitude, but also imposition of celebrations. Uh, Afro-Peruvian women are known for being 
great dancers and singers and cookers and all these celebratory practices are practices that I'm interested to understand how they became reality, how they materialize, how much of those practices are, you know, place-based, in which places are these practices, you know, uh, stronger than in others. <clears throat> but at the same time, I'm curious to know how, for example, you can have a great singer, uh, a great Afro-Peruvian singer that is respected and has so much status in mm -hmm. when she's singing or dancing or performing in general, but on the street she will be cat call. Wow. And on the street, she will be racialized. So I'm interested to know how how that can happen at the same time. You know, this can happen at the same day. Right. You can be, you know, like singing in the morning and have all this much status and appreciation for you as a black woman. And then you're on the street and you're, being, you're going to be called negra de whatever, whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. A, a racial slur. So I'm interested to know why that is happening in Lima. That's why place is so important for me. Like what, what is it about this city that is allowing these special practices to be so common and coexist at the same time? And obviously the history of Peru is a history of mestizaje, it's a history that has put indigenous and Europeans, Hispanics specifically, at the center of you know, like the population, mm -hmm. like there is a discourse of mestizaje that claims that all Latin America were a mix between indigenous and European blood. However, blackness has always been there. There has yeah. been black people from the beginning of the quote-unquote encounter of Spanish and indigenous people. And in fact, like one of the first person to arrive to what is known now as Peru came with a uh, a black man that wasn't in a place of servitude, wasn't a slave, mm. was a free person that was also doing this conquistador traveling. Mm. So, well, black people are the, the base of every Latin American society. They constructed the cities. They work as servants for the white people. They were uh, the ones selling the food on the streets. There will be no Latin American cities without black people. And there will be no celebratory, probably celebratory practices in Lima without black women. So I'm interested to know why Lima, even though that has such a, a strong black history during the colonial times, 17% of the population of Lima was black or African descendant, how that disappeared and why did it disappear? There are so many things here to think about, to ponder. I really like these topics. But I also want to know or pass the message. Uh, a lot of folks have criticized the social justice warriors a lot for not bringing tangible answers or solutions to what's happening out there. We have racism here and everywhere. So one of the questions is, can this racism be solved today or not? can be minimized, and how can this racism be challenged? Is there anything that you as a researcher from your experience and can be solved? Can, is there anything that you may propose? How can this be challenged, both here in Canada and Peru as well? 
Something that I recently understood was that we always think that racism is the production of interactions, mm. right? Like black people meet with white people and then we create the stereotypes and then boom, right. we have racist interactions. Cool. But I think what is important to understand is that those interactions exist because the system is racist mm. and because the system mm. is capitalist. Mm. So I think one of the uh, one of the main ideas that I want to stress with my research is to understand that the reasons why these black women are receiving all these mixed up reactions in Lima is because they already live in a misogynist, patriarchal, and racist environment, and they are thriving in one ways, like celebratory uh, practices. So there is a future there, and we need to acknowledge that future, and we need to acknowledge that path. Uh, it's difficult to say, like, and I, I do understand, I am an activist, but I'm mostly a scholar. So sometimes I do feel that I'm, you know, like sitting on my desk doing absolutely nothing, while these other women are being murdered and these other women are, being, are suffering constantly. Uh, I think that's the reason why I decided to do research on my own community. Right. Because not, not I only understand what's happening, but it's like it will be my direct way of like trying to change something. I don't think we will, like, I think the only way of like how racism can be abolished is to just abolish the whole system. Hmm. I don't think there is other way. Right. I, I, I really don't think the revolution is the only way. Hmm. However, how that revolution looks like I, as a privileged woman in a privileged position, I really don't know if it's my place mm -hmm. to think about, like to, you know, like bright that revolution, right. but I think like women of color, mm -hmm. especially the women of color that I'm going to meet and I'm going to spend time with, maybe it was always on them. Right. And maybe it's just my, like my only, the only thing I can do for them is to try and pass that message if they allow me. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the revolution is in indigenous people. Mm -hmm. I think it's this being their land since the beginning of times. Mm -hmm. And probably they have, we need to pay attention to what they are thinking, what they're doing, to their scholarship, and to their actions, their special actions to understand probably where the revolution can go from now. Uh, but yeah, like, I think racism can only be atta attacked if it's acknowledged. Right. I love, I love the last part you mentioned about acknowledgement. But why do we, the people of color, are the ones who acknowledge that there is racism? Most of the time, in my different conversations, uh, conferences, gatherings, you name it, with people, is we the people of color, black people and indigenous people who acknowledge and we recognize that there is racism and sometimes we may recognize how I have been racist and how I have participated in, 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 uh, uh, in this racist um, system. Yeah. But why not the others recognize this racism? I think it comes back come back to the, how the system has been portrayed, right? How the system has been constructed. Like, people following this neoliberal individualism way of thinking, now it's very easy to say, yeah, but I thrive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I work hard. That's why I'm in this position, not because I, I'm white mm -hmm. or I'm light-skinned or mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I think the only way for them to recognize that is to actually do the work and do the work on, on their own. Like I'm so tired of like people of color being educating white people constantly about their own ways of being. Exactly. And it's because privilege, they don't see their privilege or probably they acknowledge their privilege but they don't wanna change anything about that privilege, right? right. So I will put this conversation on them. It's their work, is it's their responsibility, not ours. Our, our responsibility here is to drive and for women to survive. And that is very difficult to say. Uh, I remember one of the first times I, were, I was working here in Toronto and I was crossing Queens Park mm -hmm. and there was no much light and I was so afraid for my life. Wow. And my husband told me, hey, but it's Canada, it's safe here. <laughs> and I replied, it's never safe for women. Wow. It's never safe for women. Yeah, we can be so in the most secure cool. place and we can still disappear. So, and especially for trans women. Oh, man, yeah. That's even more difficult. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, I, I really like the question that you propose because sometimes, like, we focus on how whiteness has, you know, impacted our lives, mm -hmm. and we respond to that, but, like, whiteness is the whole system. Like, whiteness is the ocean, not the shark. Right. Right? Right, true. So, it's not only on us. There must be some responsibilities and we are not here to educate everyone. So um, it's everybody's responsibility. It's not only the people of color's responsibility to educate the other on these issues, but it's everybody's uh, responsibility to recognize their privilege and their role as part of this uh, racist, capitalist, neoliberalist, patriarchal system as well. I totally understand that. One of the things that I picked up from, from what you just said um, when I asked the question about solutions or what we can do in general, I, uh, one thing that I picked up was the idea of revolution and then how that revolution would look like, right? So what I can gather from what you just said, I love the, the, the word that you said about celebrating and some of the work that I have also done is the idea of celebrating diversity and highlighting and amplifying that diversity and how can we support uh, people of color and in your case, how we can celebrate with mm -hmm. the women of color that diversity, right? Because for what you said in the beginning, when you were a child and then you were sort of being bullied because your father being a, a, a African Peruvian person, is because that diversity was never acknowledged or celebrated. Quite the opposite. It was diminished yeah. and put aside and put to the margins. But if we all, I'm saying all together, we start celebrating that diversity as opposed to pushing it to the sides, then I'm assuming at some point in the future uh, we wouldn't have these conversations. And, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we need to start actually putting more attention to the ways in which people of color celebrate life, <laughs> right? I feel that much of the knowledge production is focused on the struggles, mm -hmm. which is necessary mm -hmm. because without those scholarships, we will never, you know, like be able to grasp how in depth uh, is whiteness as a structure, you know, has been affecting our life. But I think now we're in a position as scholars to do both 
right, to understand how probably celebratory practices happen actually as a response to pain, right. as a response to struggle. But however, being celebratory on their own means that there are possible ways, there are avenues to see life in a different, in a different light. Um, it is so interesting if you go, you know, like if you go to studies on the Black Pacific, Gilroy, um, Stuart Holt, and all these uh, amazing scholars, uh, Angela Davis, mm-hmm. uh, Bell Hooks, they are also very interesting on celebratory issues. Like Catherine McKendrick is a, mm-hmm. is a black geographer from Canada, and she has a line in, in, a, in a book called The Monic Grounds that she says, sound and the sonic are embedded in black women's life. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Th- this is very interesting. I really, I'm really, you know, this is the first time I actually pay attention to the idea of celebration and ce- celebratory practices. I think, os- especially because we are people of color and we are from Latin America, we are so used to celebrate those little accomplishments but yeah. but I think we should do it even more and highlight them even more and I like it when you say how people of color celebrate life that's when we should pay attention instead of paying attention to the struggle and the pain which is is is, is fine because that's that's the, the the need that we were the urgency that we you may, we, you were mentioning earlier but I think not necessarily we should put aside the pain of the struggle because it's there anyways but how we shift the gaze to that life and yes. happiness in response to pain as you said and I really love that yes uh, a scholarship especially in North America but also in Peru like I, I lived 27 years in Peru mm. I work at the university in Peru as well like a lot of a scholarship is focused on yeah, understanding the pain understanding the struggle uh, but it's also kind of like a white way of seeing people right. of color, right. right? As always suffering, but like there is a lot of celebration of mm. life that we need mm. to acknowledge, mm. Mm. not erasing that pain, but understanding that because of pain, yes, we have, yes. you know, like resolved or like created different ways of being in the world. And I think when you were talking about celebrating the adversity, is that kind of ways of being that we should be looking at. And I think the colonizing theory is helping us to go to those spaces, right? To like not impose our views of like how life should be, but to really understand that through the pain and through celebration and through surviving, uh, our communities are showing us that there are, you know, like different ways of being in this world and we need to pay attention to them. and I think probably, probably some change can come from that. Yes, I, uh, yeah, definitely. These are great conversations. I, I believe in what you said, pain and struggle becomes resiliency, right? And it's showcased as happiness and life. And we need to highlight that and amplify that and celebrate as much as we can yeah. as an act of revolution as, a, as an act of resistance against capitalism and neoliberalism and all of those forces that are out there. Roxana, is there anything that you want to leave us with towards the end of this podcast, something that is in the back of your mind, a burning question, a burning thought, an idea that you want to share with all folks out there? 
Oh, I actually will like to shout out to the New Una Menos movement in Latin America and all the efforts they are doing to keep our girls and our women alive. I do uh, ask all the allies out there to take a deep look in what's happening in Latin America regarding gender violence, specifically trans women's lives and our kids, our children's lives, and to help us because we uh, we are so curious and, you know, like so alarmed about the coronavirus right now. Right. And the coronavirus is, there is a, a tweet that I read a few days ago that say, like, there is more chances for me to die because of murder, because of feminicide, being mm-hmm. a woman in Latin America, than for coronavirus. Oh. And that is true. And, yeah. like, women are disappearing of the world, in the world, and we are in emergency state and we need to focus on that. Yes, we need to recognize and value what's happening out there. We need to question what's happening out there. There, there are women who are being killed, murdered, you know, and being violated as we speak compared to other things that are happening in the world. I believe to finish up and wrap up this um, podcast, um, to mention that the future, our future, is the future of celebrating diversity, celebrating to the highest level who we are as people of color. Thank you very much for coming today. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. This is Jesse Ortega, and this is Chasing Encounters. Have a good rest of the week, everybody. ¿Cómo te viniste acá? ¿Caminando en bicicleta, en el bus, el tren, carro? Caminé dos minutos más de lo que pensaba. Oh, ¿por qué? ¿Qué pasó? <ríe> Me distraje viendo las, las tiendas de rompa fácil. <ríe>